on the World Football Index. Today I woke up and I had the urge to dress all in black. Why? Well, possibly it's to do with the fact it's a week to go to kick off and with Chile not making it. I'm still feeling a little bit depressed. Anyway, four men who probably aren't depressed as me, as, the, as their four teams that they report on have made it. First of all, we've got Tom Williams, representing France on this podcast, the top seed. I know Tom through a series of emails where I attempted to help him out um, with his rather excellent book, Do You Speak Football? How's it going, Tom? Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and also your favourite World Cup to date. Thanks, Adam. Um, The book's going well. Uh, Do You Speak Football? A glossary of football words and phrases from around the world. Um, And as you said, you you gave me a lot of help with the chilli section, which was greatly appreciated. Uh, It's on sale now um, in all the usual places uh, and people seem to be enjoying it so far, uh, which is nice. Uh, My background, um, I spent four years uh, living in Paris and reporting on French football, hence my attachment to Les Bleus. Uh, I've been in London for the last five years reporting on English football, um, and I'm currently doing a spot of freelancing. My favourite World Cup, uh, it's a bit of a cliche, um, but I'd probably have to say 1990. Um, I was only six at the time, but... It was the tournament that made me fall in love with football. Um, and my memories of that tournament, despite it being quite a while ago, um, are all still very sharp. Uh, so I'd probably go with that one. Yeah, exactly the same as me, Tom. I think, I think we must be the same age. Yeah. So also, keeping it European for now, we have our Denmark expert, and that is uh, Toki Fialoid. You may have heard him on our Russian, Russian network podcast. Um, Toki, how's it going? And... Tell us your favourite World Cup today. It's going good that I'm for once I'm allowed to talk about Denmark, so uh, that should be nice. Um, a good question, but the favourite World Cup, I think it would be the one in 2006 in Germany. It was the first World Cup I watched from beginning to end. Um, I remember I was yeah, 16, with my friends, we watched all the games, had a lot of fun that summer. So yeah, that's and the football was amazing as well. So yeah, that got to be my best welcome memory. Cool. And also joining us today is, is possibly somebody who's familiar to a lot of our listeners, as, as he's appeared on the South American Football Show. So you'll probably know him, Mr. Freddie Clayton, who I believe is now back in the UK after a long jaunt around this marvelous region. How's it going, Freddie? Cheers, Adam. Going really well. Uh, yeah, as you said, just returned after a year in South America in which I lived in Peru for six months. And uh, during that time, it was when Peru did qualify for the World Cup. So I got to witness all the mayhem and the carnage that went along with that and got to enjoy a little bit of it myself. So real soft spot for Peru. But yeah, now back in the UK and covering the World Cup for the Telegraph over the next couple of months. So that's all good. Uh, my favourite World Cup memory I think going with the general theme of things the first one I can remember would be 2002 I vividly remember waking up get uh, I had to go to school at half time during the England Brazil game and it was in the second half that everyone's hearts were broken and I remember that being the, the devastating moment in a class of 30 10 year olds is what I would have been at the time so yeah 2002 um, and also with the uh, with the time zone issue and with Australia being the other side in this group, it was obviously quite difficult to get all four of our experts together. So Daniel couldn't make it for this pod, but I did catch up with him last night to discuss Australia's chances. You, you can hear that later in this pod. I'll, st- I'll start with the top seed, France. Uh, Tom... I've seen a fair bit of France over the last few years, and to be honest, they've only impressed me maybe a handful of times. Um, That's including the competitive football in last World Cup and and, in Euro 2016 and the qualifiers for this, Um, and and rarely they've impressed me for a full 90 minutes either. Um, There is no doubt in their quality throughout the team, and probably along with Germany, they have the greatest strength in depth. However, I would say to anybody back in France to win this competition, um, my question would be, um, do you really think Deschamps is, is the man to make it happen? And, um, and so would you go along with that assessment? And also, are, what are your expectations for this French side? Am I right to doubt? I think that's a very fair assessment. Um, as you said, France have got an extraordinarily deep talent pool from which to pick from. Uh, But the feeling in the last couple of years, 
over the World Cup qualification campaign has been that Deschamps hasn't really known how to get those players into a system that works. Um, you look at the last Euro, there were high expectations for France um, and they made it through to the tournament final, of course, on, on home soil um, and then didn't really show up. Um, and surprisingly, Deschamps didn't get too much criticism about that. Um, I think you have to think about the, the particular context of that tournament um, with the, the awful terror attacks in Paris that preceded it. Um, and I think the team getting to the final um, and and producing some really exciting performances along the way, I mean, I think primarily about the way they beat Germany in the semi-finals, um, I think that that generated a lot of goodwill. So when they didn't turn up in the final, um, France's fans were a bit more forgiving than, than you might have expected. What's happened to France since then um, is that this really exciting group of players has emerged, um, spearheaded by Kylian Mbappe. Uh, you've got Ousmane Dembele. Um, you've got Thomas Lamar, players like that. Um, and, and that's just added to the resources at, at Deschamps' disposal. Um, I get the feeling that he's getting closer to knowing how France are going to approach the tournament. Uh, there was a, a, a very significant tactical shift during Euro 2016 um, where they started playing in a 4-2-3-1 that paired Antoine Griezmann with Olivier Giroud up front. Uh, Griezmann loves playing with Giroud. Uh, he likes having um, a strike partner who he can play off, who's going to attract centre-backs towards him. Um, and it's you know it, it was no coincidence that, that Griezmann suddenly started banging the goals in once Giroud was in the team. That's been the default shape, the default system ever since. But an issue with that is that, um, as anyone who, who follows um, the Premier League will know, and particularly Manchester United, Paul Pogba, who is France's other great star, prefers to play in a, in a midfield three. Uh, and I think Deschamps, who is naturally uh, a pragmatist, feels more comfortable with three central midfielders on the pitch rather than two. So what they've done in the last few games, uh, the last few friendly games, is they've been playing with a midfield three with Pogba um, and and then a, a slightly more fluid front three with Griezmann, with Mbappe in, in a really exciting free role. Uh, and then either Giroud uh, leading the line um, as this sort of um, you know focal point uh, or Ousmane Dembele. Um, who provides a similar sort of threat to, to Mbappe. Um, I, th I think you're right to say that um, until France find that formula, I don't think you can put them on the same level as, as teams like Germany, Spain, Brazil. Uh, but I, I do feel like they're, they're getting closer. Um, and I, I think if things click, France are potential world champions um, the only issue is they haven't clicked yet. So that, that's the big question. Is this this new approach going to work? Can, can Deschamps find a way of, of, of getting this team um, to, to really click? Because if they do, with the talent they have, they could be really, really frightening. I was reading in a newspaper the other day that the French government aren't allowing public showings of these games um, on the French streets due to the fear of terror attacks, which, which you just mentioned. Um, I imagine that will dampen World Cup spirits there a bit, given that it's, I think it's been a bit of a tradition over there since '98. I mean, it, yes, uh, inevitably that sort of thing will will have an impact, and you know, and uh, anyone who's ever witnessed um, a big tournament in in a big city will know how those sorts of events really help to create that kind of carnival atmosphere. Um, French have a bit of a strange relationship with football there's this quite hardy streak of of intellectual snobbery that uh that, that would rather see football kept in the margins if you like uh, it doesn't really bleed into uh the everyday discourse in the way that it does in other countries um but at the same time when france won the world cup in 1998 a million people descended on the champs Elysees. zinedine zidane had his face uh projected against the side of the arc de triomphe so so there's potential for uh, the nation to, to get behind the team in that way. And I think it's also worth saying that this team, broadly speaking, is is more popular than some of its predecessors. I mean, you go back to, obviously, the 2010 World Cup, the great breakdown that we saw there um, <clears throat> with the team going on strike. Um, and 
Uh, we saw what happened at the 2010 World Cup um, with that, the big meltdown in the squad refusing to train, going on strike. Uh, and then those problems rumbled on um, under Laurent Blanc. And we, we saw that there were issues also at Euro 2012. This team have, uh, have, have done a very good job of uh, drawing a line under those episodes. Um, there's a lot of very exciting young players who've come through um, and, and this team has really grown over the, the duration of, of Deschamps' tenure. There wasn't great anger that they didn't win Euro 2016. Um, new players have come in since to bring even more dynamism. Um, so although, as you say, the, sort of the lack of, of big public fan zone type experiences will, will have some kind of effect on the way the World Cup is followed in France, I think generally speaking there's, there's, a, there's a certain degree of affection for this team and, and, and I think people will follow the tournament pretty closely and, and, and with, a lot of, uh, with a lot of optimism. OK, I'll give you a little bit of a break now, Tom, to lubricate your vocal cords. I'll come on to Toke to discuss Denmark. Toke, thanks to Hero, the official film of the 1986 World Cup, which I had on VHS and played to the point it went funny. Um, Denmark is a side where my expectation of them rarely matches what what they actually do in major competitions. But probably in my lifetime, their their 4-1 win over Nigeria in the last 16 of France 98 is probably the last time they kind of made a major impression on me in in, in a World Cup. But but that 5-1 win over Ireland in the UEFA playoffs um, in Dublin, obviously that was very impressive. Um, that got them here to the World Cup, and it was also quite brilliant performance from the from the wonderfully gifted Christian Eriksen. Given all that context and um, the fact that they also impressed me in parts of, of a friendly against uh, against Chile in March as well, what do you and your fellow Danes expect of this side? Uh, I think the general expectation is that we'll advance from the group. We hope to be better than Australia. We should be better than Australia, and hopefully Peru as well. Uh, obviously, everybody expects France to to uh, win the group, but let's let's not forget that in uh, I believe it was 2002 we sent France out of the World Cup with a victory in the last game. So hopefully we can we can do that again in, in Russia. But yeah, as you said, I mean this Danish national team today is nowhere near the teams of the past. It's nowhere near the team in '86 with all the great players who became who are the biggest legends of Danish football today. It, it isn't even close to the team of '98 with the Laudrup brothers and. But but it's a good team. I mean, we have Christian Eriksen, who is in in the form of his life. He is leading this team. He is the big star, and we have some interesting young players like Piona Sisto, Andre Christensen from Chelsea. Uh, so it, it is it is a good side. There's some unhappiness with the coach, uh, Harreide. He he has done relatively well. I mean, he did get us to the World Cup, which everybody is is happy for, of course. We remember the 4-0 victory against Poland in the qualification, the 5-1 victory against Ireland, both great games. For the first time, Christian Eriksen is playing well on the national team, which of course is also a great achievement from Harreide. He's always underperformed for Denmark, but but finally that has ended. But then came the whole squad selection process, which it has turned into quite the farce, actually. I mean, he uh, he left out Daniel Vaz, for example. He has been a fantastic player for Celta Vigo in the Liga this season. One of few Danish players who was really making an impact in one of Europe's best leagues. So he should be a, a regular in the national team. But Harald simply doesn't trust him. And it evolved into a big case where Vaz claimed that Harald had lied about why he wasn't selecting him. And there was a big media dispute where they made archive claims about each other in the biggest newspapers. And then afterwards, he also decided to leave out uh, Niklas Bentner, uh, who had a really good season at Rosenborg last season in Norway, and Andreas Bjelland, who was a starter, regular starter throughout the qualification. He claims both of the players were injured. Both of the players say that they were ready to play at the World Cup. So that has been the focus has been shifted a bit away from football recently, and they haven't gotten the best the best warm up to the tournament. Okay, and I'll I'll come back to you in a little bit as well to get the strengths and weaknesses of that Denmark side. But I also want to bring Freddie into the conversation now, and uh, and Peru along with it. Um, Peru have been incredibly impressive since qualifying in all their friendly matches, haven't they, Freddie? Um, Convincing wins over Scotland, uh, Saudi Arabia, Croatia and Iceland. It was pretty weak, Scotland side, thinking back, but but still. 
they got it done. So, in fact, Peru are now on their longest ever unbeaten run, 14 without a loss. Um, that obviously includes um, some tricky World Cup qualifying uh, matches in there as well. It's a football-mad country, as you probably saw when you were there. So, after sort of almost 40 years away, this is um, a pretty big deal. No, they're in, they're in Peru. What, what are the expectations and, and how do you see them getting on? Right, so yeah, you're absolutely right. 14 unbeaten is pretty spectacular and that's been no small feat. And it's not like they've been very lucky in that time. It's, they have been deserved wins. I think that um, when it comes down to it, yeah, it is a football mad nation. And as we've seen, a lot of statistics have come up of how Peru have sort of got maybe more fans in Russia than even England and applications were through the roof. And there's a real spirit about it. But this is no story of perhaps Northern Ireland at the Euros in 2016. This isn't a happy to be there situation. This is certainly a we need to, there is an expectation that this won't the party won't end at the group stages. It's not going to be with there along to make up the numbers and this will be our first World Cup and then we won't qualify for another 30 years. This is supposed to be the start of something bigger and they're expected to be strong. I think there really is this expectation that there will be a knockout stage here. And I do think with Peru as well, they're going to be really there's going to be a real sense of spirit and a lot of people behind them. They are underdogs by the nature of having been 36 years without a World Cup. Guerrero's story has obviously gone viral. A lot of people thinking it was an injustice. And so everyone loves to hate uh, Wada and see Cass. And, you know, there's kind of that backing there. And so because Peru have gone viral, because they have an attack, they're an attacking team with an attack minded manager. Um, they're a new country for many. No one will remember their last World Cup. Well, a few might, but most of the World Cup audience now will not remember. And their last World Cup was unmemorable anyway. They don't really have any really strong rivalries with any of the nations there either. They have a great shirt. I think they're going to be a lot of people's second team if they can get past the group stage. There's going to be a lot of backing behind them because it's an exciting time. It was, it was quite interesting, the fact that the captains of Australia, France and Denmark, you know, also backed Peru's case and Paolo Guerrero's case in, against Cass, didn't they? Absolutely. This is all great publicity. The Guerrero incident, now he's back and here they do have their best player. It's, it's worked well because it's given them this kind of global reputation now because it has been a massive sports story, the Guerrero saga, because it's kind of had, you know, it's a six month story and it's all come to a head just before the World Cup. And it's like a last minute. He just arrived at the hotel a week before, you know, it all kicks off. It's got all the drama around him. So everyone's becoming aware of Peru. They got a bit of UK audience attention because they played Scotland. People seeing, okay, you know, they look good. Uh, that wasn't a great game, but it was an important game because they broke down a difficult team and Peru do struggle to break down worse teams than them. And that bodes well for Australia, which I was very sort of, I guess, a little bit had my doubts about whether I think that could in some ways be Peru's hardest game, like in the first leg against New Zealand in the playoffs when they really couldn't get a goal. And they were just being frustrated by a team that had much less quality. And ultimately, despite all of this really positive stuff, all of this great, you know, the 14 game on beating running, all of this fantastic news and sur everything surrounding the Peru team, it could all end on the first day. Because if they lose that Denmark match, I think that will settle it. I don't think they'll make it through. And so it's a real, I think it really, for them, it comes down to the second day of the entire World Cup. And that's, for me, my expectations of it will be based around that fixture. For the fans, I really hope they don't lose that game. I really hope, I really hope it's not a draw. I hope they win it. Um, because I think Peru could do something really special at this World Cup. And as was released today in some sort of BBC simulations stat, Peru, apparently one of the underdog favourites to make the semi-finals with, a, uh, I think it was a 20, 22% chance of making the semis. Amazing. And a better chance of winning it than England. Um, so, you know, there's a real hype around it. And it's very fun for anyone who's been following the team over the past year, for sure. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to stick with you to discuss some strengths and weaknesses of this Peru side. And if we, if, if we just stay on that point about kind of linking in with the expectations which I just asked you about. I think I think my worry here with Peru and, and I have a couple of friends in Lima and, and I've spoken to them and and that, and that, and because of this great run that they're on, 
you know, they're now pretty confident that they can uh, get to get to that knockout stage, which I don't think was the scenario when they first qualified. It, it was a little bit more of a case of, ah, oh, we're finally back in the World Cup. But now expectations have been raised. And um, the fact that everything has gone so well in friendlies, I, I, I think one of their weaknesses might be when something does go wrong in a competitive match, we, we're not really sure how they might react. And also, they could be a little bit overwhelmed by the whole experience and, and the whole occasion. What do you, what, would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I think there is certainly an element of what what happens if they go down 1-0 to Denmark in the 30th minute. What How do they respond to that? Because... Again, in the friendlies against Iceland, Croatia, Saudi Arabia and Scotland, I don't think they've been behind yet. And the last kind of up against it moment was when Colombia took the lead in the game that Peru had to get a point or a win. And then Guerrero scored a free kick that, if you remember, is the one where David Ospina, you know, I remember it well, into the, yeah, because it cost Chile a place. In this one, yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course, of course, you remember it. So, Ospina's not the most popular man, exactly. So, I guess with that, you kind of have there, there is a history within the past year of them, okay, dealing with a situation like, okay, we've we've done all this work, we've come, we've come so close, how are we going to respond to this? And there is a little bit of luck there, and Guerrero has pulled them out, pulled it out the bag. And so, hopefully, they can kind of draw inspiration from that and remember that they have been up against it before, they've done the hard part. Getting out of getting out of the South America qualifying is harder than qualifying from this group, and hopefully the the four the previous four friendlies haven't gone to their heads because victories against Croatia and a plucky Iceland side that's not they are not that's not no small feat anymore you know especially the Croatia game when you're up against a midfield of Rakitic and Modric these are really impressive players and you've essentially dominated them as well and so I do have my concerns about Peru sort of you know what will happen if they do go down if they do hit trouble and how they will respond if they do lose that first game will they go all out against France and also my other concern is in these friendlies Peru have played attacking lineups I really hope and I don't think he will but I really hope he doesn't abandon this sort of attacking philosophy that has taken Peru so far but Garessa, Ricardo Garessa, the manager really has to stick with um, these kind of having four attacking players one in the middle and sort of uh, five, it's been basically four attacking players, one in the middle, and then five at the back, um, or and sometimes two in the middle. And you got, I think that he has to keep with that because if he abandons those principles and it doesn't pay off, and he go, gets cagey against Denmark, and then they go on and win it one nil, then that is going to put a huge down on what is essentially feels like thirty six years of build up and hype. And if it's all over on the second day of the tournament, then that'll be a real shame. Yeah, I, th- I think the only other, you know, weakness we we might want to point out here is is the fact anybody who watched that playoff against New Zealand would have seen yeah. Chris Wood cause this crew defence all kinds of trouble. And if Chris Wood had been fit for both legs of, of that of that tie. I think Peru might not even be here, to be honest, given given the given the trouble he gave them. So they do have an issue defending the ball in the air, I think, and, and so Christian Eriksen's delivery in that first match, for example, could well be a worry for them on on corners and free kicks. That's that's certainly something I'm worried about yeah. for them. Um, is is there any other weakness that, that you might want to point out? Well, it, yeah, it is. That New Zealand first leg is a really good example of a few of Peru's weaknesses. And that is, yeah, like you said, um, dealing with strikers who get get themselves about a bit. Wood, you know, he he does he does bully defenders in his own kind of scrappy old school way. I don't think Peru were very used to seeing much of that. And so, and they and they did get it. They did ride their luck there. They're, they're, Galese and goal was incredible, if I remember correctly. In those and those, those two legs, really, really pulled it out of the bag. And then, um, and then the other weakness in that game was just creating basically next to nothing in ninety minutes against a team that was playing uh, pretty much would were settling for a draw, I think. And so, if Australia go for that kind of tactic of Denmark uh, sit back, I think if these teams do sit back and frustrate and just and go at Peru when they get a, get the odd chance. 
it could be won against Prue with a set piece. And I don't think Prue have that, although they, they play a lot of attackers, I don't think they're of such exceptional quality that they are able to create chances at will. They they do struggle to, you know, get in behind and actually make uh, those kind of... Um, Make those chances that the, the win games um, and score goals and and if and like against New Zealand. Hopefully, the last four friendlies show that they've done a little bit of work on that. It's whether with Guerrero now back inside after a long time out that all gels. Like I said, um, that I, th- I feel as though the first game against Denmark will expose two of their weaknesses. There, like you said, with Ericsson's delivery, they could be in trouble. And if you said that Bentner has not been chosen, I would have thought he would be, be the kind of player against Peru who would be a real menace. Yeah, and I, and I think one of their strengths is 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 now the fact that they had to play some of those friendly, friendlies without their number nine and talisman, Paulo Guerrero, um, as we discussed earlier. I, th- I think the fact they had to do without him for a bit meant that Ricardo Gareca had to think about a plan B. And I think that sort of proved a blessing in disguise there because because they now do have that plan B in place um, if something does happen to Guerra and and they know that they can trust Farfan in in a central row up front now as well, which is which is good to see. Um, but yeah, I I, I think. What are some of the other strengths of this Peru side for, for those who don't know? Well, I'd say that one of the strengths you've really got to look at from well, that is, was evident most of all against those friendlies um, in Cro- uh, against Croatia was the um, Renato uh, Tapia, who is also the squad's youngest player. It's, it's quite a, I know, a middle-aged squad, you might say, uh, and I don't mean 40s, um, I sort of mean late 20s and uh, early 30s. Um, and Tapia is the is, is 22, youngest player in the team. Um, so Tapia, he, he's able he's able to dominate that midfield. He dominated a display against against Rakitic and Modric, and and he was also well up for Sigurdsson had he been fit against Iceland um, for for Iceland when they played Iceland. And and so and he and he's he's one of the stars here. I, I really think that that midfield they they they're winning battles there and they're showing that they can win the battles and these friendlies. Um, Croatia took that friendly seriously and he won that against two world class midfielders who are sort of household names. And and then because um, a lot of focus has been given to Guerrero, who's obviously the country's only Ballon d'Or nominee ever, and he's kind of the only one with any sort of international profile. Edison Flores gets quite a lot of attention, a little bit as a sort of pacey winger, and he's got some profile in Denmark. And so, and and you've got this attacking line, you've got this attack, but also you've got what who is an excellent goalie. He's been absolutely spectacular in South America. They would not be there if not for his display against Argentina back in October. And you've got this absolutely dominating central midfielder who has proven that he can do it against world-class individuals who play for the likes of Madrid and Barcelona. So there are strengths down the spine of that team. Um, it's just whether they can score enough goals and with a, a, a perhaps a tiny bit of a shaky defence, not concede stupid, stupid chances. And that, that'll be what it comes down to. OK, and, and so let's let's head back to France and, and, and Tom. Tom, oh, what... I've already sort of touched on what I think one of uh, this uh, French side's weaknesses might be, and, and, that, and that's their head coach. But well, what are some of the other weaknesses you see of this French side? Um, I think they have some issues at centre-back. Um, they're going to start the tournament with Raphael Varane and Samuel Mtiti alongside each other. Um, Varane hasn't yet played since the Champions League final. He's been rested, but uh, he's due to, to come back into the starting eleven. And they are tipped to be uh, France's centre-back pairing for the next 10 years or so. And on paper, they complement each other really well. I mean, you, you know, Varane is a right-footer, Umtiti's a left-footer. Um, you know, two very quick players, Titi a bit more physical, but also with a lovely left foot on him. Varane, very elegant, great on the ball. But when they played alongside each other, they haven't been all that convincing. Um, and in the March friendlies, uh, when France lost at home to Colombia, uh, having gone 2-0 up, they both played really poorly uh, and were both at fault at various different times of the game. Uh, Laurent Koscielny then came into the starting eleven when they, they played against Russia um, and France looked a lot more solid um, and so Koscielny's 
absence through injury means that Deschamps has no choice but to pick Varane and uh, Umtiti alongside each other. And, and they're two exceptional footballers. I think Umtiti in particular has had a very good season at Barcelona. Varane's just won the Champions League again with Real Madrid, so that they're two high-achieving footballers. But their their partnership uh, still needs refining. Um, and I think one of the reasons why Deschamps has, has brought in this, this three-man midfield is, is partly due to a desire to give that centre-back pairing um, a bit more protection. Um, behind them, uh, Hugo Lloris uh, has been a little bit shaky. Um, they won their most recent friendly uh, against Italy in Nice, but he was at fault for the Italy goal. He flapped at a, a Balotelli free kick, um, sort of pushed it straight back out into the danger area. Wasn't particularly convincing in qualifying. Um, he had one real horror show away against Sweden, um, completely fluffed a clearance right at the end of the game kicked it straight to Ola Toivonen, the Sweden striker, who, who promptly lobbed the ball back over his head and scored the winning goal. Uh, and he's not had a fantastic season for Spurs either, uh, Lloris. So there's a little bit of a question mark over him. Um, at the other end of the pitch, clearly France have got fantastic resources, um, all sorts of different options. But as I said in my, my previous answer, um, they haven't quite settled on how they're going to play um, there's a there's a risk that if they play this this new system with the three man midfield and the three relatively narrow uh, forwards um, that they might be a little bit narrow. Um, it's been noticeable in the two most recent friendlies against Ireland and Italy that the fullbacks uh, got forward a lot more. Uh, Benjamin Mendy uh, is obviously back from the injury that kept him out of the Man City team for the whole season. He seems to be to be back and, and fully fit. Uh, Gibril Sidibe, the Monaco right back, he got injured at the end of the season, uh, but his performances in the friendlies have been encouraging. Uh, and then in the win over Italy, they played with their two backup fullbacks, uh, Benjamin Pavard, the, the Stuttgart player on the right, and Lucas Hernandez uh, on the left, and they both played really well. Um, and it's it sort of against type a bit for Deschamps to encourage his fullbacks to attack quite so much. Um, he's he's quite a conservative coach. He prefers his his fullbacks to show a bit more circumspection when it comes to crossing the halfway line. But I think if they are going to play with this this narrow three of Griezmann, Mbappe, and one other, they're going to need the fullbacks to get forward more. Um, and the, the danger there, of course, is that that centre back pairing, which is a little bit unsteady, uh, of Varane and, and Umtiti, risks being exposed even more. Um, so. Clearly, a huge amount of talent in that France team, a, a decent amount of international experience, and a lot of attacking quality. But there are there are areas of concern, and also as you've as you've touched upon yourself, I mean, Deschamps is is by his nature quite a conservative coach. Um, okay, he, he took France to the to the final at Euro 2016. Generally speaking, he knows what it takes to win football matches, but you know there are some there are some suggestions that when it comes to the crunch that he, he might not lack uh, or, or rather he might, he might not possess the, the tactical bravery that's required um, to win, uh, to win matches at the business end of the tournament. It's interesting that you mentioned who, who Lloris there as a, as a, as a potential weakness. I'm not sure you meant to put it quite like that, but you know, he, he has been pretty consistent for Spurs over the last few years in the Premier League and, we, and, and he's been one of their best players. But for me, he always makes me a little bit nervous, especially in big matches. No. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, I, I think he is one of the best goalkeepers around. But um, I think it's telling that, as well as he's played for Spurs, and I think I think he's been a really important player for Spurs. And I think his style of goalkeeping, um, the sort of sweeper keeper, if you like. I mean, we've seen that a little bit less. From him in the last couple of seasons, but I think that I think that's been a big part of of uh, establishing Spurs' identity. But there is there is that fear that that he has a mistake in him, and I think it's telling that he hasn't been linked um, with uh, a move away. I mean, he's you know he's been at Spurs for several years now, and okay, Spurs are a different kind of club these days. They're a Champions League club, and they've they've got a lot of exciting players, and they've got a, you know they've got a, they've got a great young manager. But you would expect uh, a player like Lloris. Uh, to have been linked uh, with with some of Europe's real glamour clubs, and that hasn't really happened. Um, and yeah, I, I think I think generally speaking, Lloris is, is an exceptional goalkeeper. Um, I think his his reflexes are, are astonishing. 
Um, I think for a goalkeeper who is who is quite slight and who isn't as tall as some of his competitors, he doesn't really get bullied all that often. Um, I think he's I think with a ball at his feet, he's he's, he's decent. He's, he's he's not one of the best around, but he's um he's, he's generally good with the ball and he's he's got a nice left foot on him. But there is that that slight vulnerability, that that worry that there might be a mistake there. Um, and when you've got uh, a an inexperienced centre-back pairing ahead of him, uh, which is which is what he will have with Varane and Titi. That that could be a recipe for problems. Let's look at some of the positives of this French side. On paper, at least, you know they, they seem tenfold. To be honest, especially the the quality, uh, the amount of quality attackers that they. Have. Could you just give us a little bit more detail into that, please? Yeah, I mean, they've got a fantastic array of attacking players. I mean, we start with Antoine Griezmann, who was the top scorer at Euro 2016. He's just come off a really good season at Atletico Madrid. He scored a brace in the Europa League final um, as they beat Marseille. Um, he's being linked with a move to Barcelona. Everyone knows how good he is. Olivier Giroud, who I think is, is quite an underrated footballer. Um, I think because of his lack of pace, he isn't quite held in the esteem that he deserves to be. I can't think of many better footballers in, in world football who are as good uh, as he is at, at what he does, you know, playing with his back to goal, holding the ball up. Uh, I think his, you know, his, um, his ability to play one-twos, to, to weigh uh, layoffs um, is, is unparalleled. Um, and and he and Griezmann have got a good understanding. Then you've got Kylian Mbappe, who I, I think is the most exciting young talent in world football, and has been ever since he broke onto the season, uh, broke onto the scene with Monaco in their title-winning season. Um, he's had a, a successful first season at PSG. He's he's won league, he's won he's won the domestic cups. Um, he has successfully integrated. Uh, himself into that team, uh, playing in a slightly different position to what he was doing at Monaco, playing out on the wing. Um, and you've got Usman Dembele. Okay, he's not had a triumphant first season at Barcelona. Um, not helped by the, the hamstring injury that he got right at the start of the season, um, and his his stats for, for the season really weren't very impressive at all. But very very talented footballer, you know, great pace, great dribbling ability, two footed. He was very impressive uh, in the game against Italy. Him and Mbappe seem to really enjoy playing alongside each other. The two players with similar uh, skill sets. Obviously, Mbappe is more of a finisher, but two very quick, very skillful players. Um, and then the options on the bench, uh, Nabil Fekir, who's one of my favourite footballers around at the moment. Uh, he's basically going as Griezmann's understudy uh, in that kind of withdrawn striker role. Uh, wonderful uh, left foot, little stocky footballer. Great feet, great technique. Has had a brilliant season with Lyon. Scored some incredible goals. Uh, Florian Tovin, uh, former Newcastle flop, who the last two seasons at Marseille has really started to fulfil his potential. Uh, and he gives them something that they don't have any, anywhere else. Uh, a, a quick left-footed attacking player who tends to start on the right uh, can cut inside onto his onto his left foot, and you know this season I think the only player who outscored him in league one was Edinson Cavani, um, which is which is saying a lot. Um, and then you know the, the midfielders, I mean Thomas Lamar uh, again hasn't had as good a season with Monaco as he did when they won the league, but a wonderful player, fantastic left foot, I mean, technically very very good, can play wide, can play centrally, can play as a number ten, uh, very versatile, uh, great set pieces. Paul Pogba, uh, who remains this very enigmatic figure, but who has the potential to be a game changer. You know, we know that we don't see it all that often, but you know, he showed that in, in that game at Man City when United won there late in the season. Uh, what he can do against the top teams. Corentin Tolisso, uh, not had a great first season at Bayern Munich, but it's been very impressive every time he's played for France um, and is a very, very uh, skilled midfielder when it comes to linking midfield and attack. Uh, two super attacking fullbacks in Mendy and, and Sidibe. Uh, and then you've got Pavar uh, and uh, Lucas Hernandez behind them. Uh, two very classy ball playing centre backs. Uh, and then in the middle of it all, you've got N'Golo Conte with his incredible engine, uh, his, his tactical ability, his ability to break up the game. Uh, so, I mean, there is so much talent there, and I find myself almost, you know, kind of getting carried away talking about it because there is so much ability in that team. It's just that the question is, can Deschamps find the formula? Can he make it click? Uh, and if he can, they, they could go a long way. I'll come back to Denmark now. The strengths of this Denmark side, um, Turkey, is it just too simple to say it's Christian Eriksen uh, because he's one of the best 
playmakers in, in the world. And um, but from, also from what I saw of their friendly against uh, against Chile, I think the pace of uh, Sisto it could could well cause teams some trouble as well. No. Well, of course, it, it's a bit more complicated than just Ericsson, but. But it is true. I mean, he is by far the best player on the team. He was the top scorer in the qualification, and everything goes through him. I mean, we rarely score without Everson have have some kind of um, participation in the goal. And yeah, he he's definitely the key player. He's the guy all the other players are looking for. He's the he's a top performer. As I said earlier, in the past he didn't really perform that well on the national team, but within the qualification he was simply he was fantastic throughout basically all the games. And he is such an important part. He's he's the only player on this team who really has world class. So for for the for the Danish national team to be successful, we need Christian Eriksen to be successful. Uh, he recently had a, child, a, a kid. His uh, I believe, believe his first uh, his first child. So he hasn't been in the national team uh, camp for the past few days. Um, he just got, he just returned to training today. So hopefully his his mind is is back at the World Cup now. But yeah, it has been. It, all of Denmark has been waiting for him to get his child so he can return to the to the camp because there was a few worries about us having to needing to to be without him in the in the opening games. Um, but yeah, as you said, there are other players than than uh, Eriksen in the squad, of course. Sisto is a very promising player. Unfortunately, he hasn't really gotten his breakthrough on the national team. We have seen him do wonderful things in, in Spain. We have seen him score against Barcelona. Everybody knows that he's a brilliant young player, that he has a bright future if he continues to develop. But but he's he's yet to really break through. The same goes for for a guy like Casper Dolber, for example. He he's been really good for, for Ajax, not as good this season uh, as he was last season. But still, he, he's a really promising player. But but we still we need him to break through in the national team because right now they're still they're promising players, but not more than that. Um, another big strength of this Danish team is is the fact that the players they know each other. Um, they have many of them have played together for a long time now. There's really a comradeship in the squad. The players really like each other. There's usually not any drama in the squad, and that goes a long way. I mean that Denmark has rarely produced a lot of world-class players, but because of the unity in the squad, because of the will to fight and um, and give everything for, for the for the country, we, we have managed to overperform in the past. And, and I think that, that goes for this World Cup as well. And what are some of the weaknesses you see of this Denmark side? Um, I don't see anything particularly obvious apart from maybe lacking star quality aside from Ericsson. My biggest worry is that, yeah, as I said, Ericsson is a big profile. My biggest worry is still in the offense, though. Defensively, we're relatively stable. Kia and Christensen are, are really, really good defenders, both of them. They play in, in top clubs in Europe. But offensively, it's looking difficult. Dalba is not yet breaking through on the national team. Nikolaj Janssen had a good season in, uh, in in Holland last season, where he was the top scorer. But but he's not he's not simply not good enough for the World Cup. He he's been quite bad in the in the qualification. He's he doesn't score enough goals. He's not dangerous enough. The same goes for Cornelius, uh, who plays in Serie A, and Yusuf uh, Paulsen, who plays in in Germany. They're simply not good enough. They don't score enough goals. And when Eriksen doesn't score, it's it's just tough to see who will score the goals. We're simply too easy to shut down because the strikers are not lethal enough. That's also why basically the entire Danish population was so disappointed when Ben wasn't picked up because he's a guy despite all his flaws, which I'm sure you know there are a lot of, he is a guy who has proven himself at the highest level. He is a guy who can score against even the best uh, the best opponents. And he does have that international class, even though he's still, he, he plays in Norway now. And I, I would really have loved to see him at the World Cup. I think he could have done very well. Maybe not as a starter, but at least as a joker from the bench, because we know that he can do the unexpected. Uh, and that's that's unfortunately what we need on this team. We have a lot of fine players, we have a lot of decent players, but we don't have that many players who can really go in and and change the outcome of a game. Who can who can create something on their own? I mean, it it is really unfortunate at the moment. Only Eriksson who can who can go in and completely turn a game around. The main weakness, in my opinion, is is the fact that we lack goal scorers. Simply, we don't have any any proven strikers who with a lot of goals to the name. Nicole Janssen has done it in Netherlands, but not in, not in the national team. And that's, that really is a problem. 
um, we lack someone who can score. I, I, I fear that you'll be too easy to shut down against good opponents who will simply sit, I mean, put a man or two on Eriksen and then that's it for us. We, we don't have any plan B. We, everything has to go through him. We need him for, for anything uh, offensively. And yeah, that's a problem. Secondly, I worry a bit about the the midfield. Okahara really loves to play William Quist. Uh, some of you might remember him from Stuttgart and, and Fulham, but, but he's 33 right now. He has been awful this season for Copenhagen. Simply a horrible season for him. He doesn't have the level he's, uh, for international football. He's not quick enough. He's he's not smart enough anymore. He's, he's too slow in every aspect of the game. But for some reason, he still starts in the central midfield um, and and he's just a liability, but in, in both ends of the pitch, really. Offensively, he 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 doesn't have the creativity needed to open up the defense. Defensively, he's too slow. He makes too many free kicks, gets too many bookings, and yeah, if we keep him in the starting lineup, which I fear we will, then that can really hurt us. Yeah, I have to say this is probably the group I'm looking forward to seeing most in in the in the World Cup. I think I think there's some really interesting sides, and I. And I'm hoping that we don't see too much defensive football. I also caught up with Daniel Hemingway of Fox Sports Australia to to talk about the Socceroos chances going into Russia 2018. Okay, yeah, so joining me today is Daniel Hemingway. Um, Some Aussies listening to this might be surprised I have a POM on to talk about the Socceroos. So you might want to give the listeners a quick introduction to who you are. Hello, yeah, thanks for having me. I work at Fox Sports in Australia. I'm a television producer in the soccer department, um, specialising in the Honda A-League and the Socceroos. I spend most of my day watching and reading about Australian football. I've heard and seen some people say that Australia will basically be the whipping boys in this group, but my gut feeling tells me that they will put up a a decent enough fight to make their games competitive, as, as we saw in their match against Chile in the Confederations Cup last year. So expectation is low, though, outside of Australia from the neutrals in general. But what's it like there down under? And has it perhaps been boosted a bit by that 4-0 win over the Czech Republic the other day? Um, it's probably been slightly boosted, but everyone who watched the game could see that Czech Republic were very much on holidays. You almost felt for their players playing a long European season and getting told, can you go play a friendly in Austria against Australia? And they're probably thinking, well, I'd rather just go on holiday. And that was the attitudes that kind of come across on the pitch. But for the first 20 minutes, Czech Republic played well and they did get behind Australia very easily, which was worrying. But Australia went on to win 4-0. But I would agree with the rest of the world that expectation is very low in Australia, just in terms of the group was very tough. The one hope they're hanging on to, which is a bit out of naivety, I think, is that they might get something out of Peru, but that just comes down to the fact they know nothing about Peru, rather than looking at them thinking, well, look at the group they've come through. They've got an incredible winning streak at the moment, so I'd be surprised if Peru surprised everybody and won the group. So what I take from that is basically you don't see too many strengths of this Australian side. Uh, there's not... Too many strengths, I'd say. It's quite a weak squad in terms of recent years, what we've had here in Australia. Obviously, we had the Dream Team 2006, where everyone seemed to be playing top-flight football across Europe. Well, if you look at this one, you've only really got Aaron Moy and Matt Ryan, who are playing in the Premier League, one of which is a goalkeeper. Aaron Moy is a fantastic player, so he'll probably play all three games. And then the rest of them are sort of scattered over the lower leagues across Europe. You've got Tom Rogic playing for Celtic. But no disrespect to the Scottish Premier League, it's quite an easy division, especially playing for Celtic to stand out. Um, but there's a few unknown players which are quite like that come through from the High A League here in Australia. You've got Daniel Azani, who was playing in the youth team for Melbourne City. He broke into the first team and then he's been the standout and everyone here has been calling for him to get his chance, which he was given. And he's got super quick feet. He's the youngest player in the World Cup this year, which is quite exciting for Australia to see how he goes as a 19-year-old. And then another player which just left the A-League um, is Andrew Naboot, who had a fantastic season with Newcastle Jets and recently just got signed by Euro Red Diamonds in Japan. Um, he's fantastic. He was playing lone striker against Czech Republic, scored, and he's got fantastic pace. He can score for, from anywhere. To your listeners... Just go onto YouTube and type in Andrew Naboot, Golvi, Western Sydney Wanderers. It's just fantastic. 
And so, what do you see as the weaknesses of this Australia side? Uh, the defence is very, very average, so much so that, uh, as it stands currently, a centre midfielder is playing as a centre back, which is worrying in um, Mark Milligan. Fantastic player, but he's, he's what, 34 ish, and he's a centre midfielder, but he can play anywhere, and he's playing alongside and centre back. And then right back, there's just very limited options and it's Josh Risden from Western Sydney Wanderers who will probably be playing there because he is the only natural right back we've got in the squad and to be fair to him he did play quite well in the friendly against Czech Republic left back we're quite lucky we've um, got James Meredith who's had a fantastic year at Millwall and then there's Asis Bayic who will be the starter he's in Bursapur at Turkey but the way the Czech Republic's got in behind Australia was so easy in the first 20 minutes they you look at the pace France, Peru, and obviously Denmark are going to have. I think it's just going to be a bit too easy for them. Matt Ryan's going to be very busy. So it'll be quite interesting. And it's going to be a case of sit back, try soak up as much pressure, and then we'll nick a goal if we can. OK, and, and who do you see as kind of the stars of this Australia side? Perhaps a name you just mentioned there, Matt Ryan. He, obviously, he's had quite a decent season with Brighton. And you've also mentioned the the youngest player in this World Cup, Daniel Azani. If he gets a chance, he, he could he could have an impact. Is there other any other names that the regular football fan could perhaps look out for? Because it's quite an Asian squad. Those two, as you mentioned, there, Andrew Nabu, as I spoke upon, who's now in Japan. It's quite exciting for him. He's only played three games for Australia, and he is a really exciting player. And there's no one, Dimi Petratos, whether or not he'll break into the squad. He's had another very good season here in the A-League. Would be interesting. Tommy Juric, the striker from FC Luzerne in Switzerland. Um, he's 50-50 at the moment. He's in the squad, and they're taking him, and he is going for a bit of an injury. Um, so they've brought in Jamie McLaren, who originally didn't make the 30-man squad got withdrawn and then Tommy Urich got injured and they've pulled him back and said actually no you've got a place in the World Cup and I'm a big fan of Jamie McLaren he went to SV Darmstadt in second tier in Germany didn't really do anything went to Scotland and he's had a great little spell there since January he scored a hat-trick on the last game for Hibs he's very fast quick sort of the old fox in the box if you like um, but I could be a little bit biased talking about him because I do like him as a person okay and Obviously, Australia in a in a slightly odd position here because the manager that took Australia to the World Cup, Angie Postagoglu, hope I've pronounced that right. He's close, as close. <laughs> I, I was listening to an interview with him on the BBC the other day, and um, he said he'd be watching this World Cup from um, sipping cocktails on a Greek island. He put it so obviously he didn't fancy much the the responsibility of taking this Australia side. Uh, to Russia 2018 he felt that the criticism that he got from the media there in Australia was a little was a little bit too much and uh, and I think he got a bit bored of it by the end of it uh, despite having a decent relationship with with these players do you think that's going to have an effect on this Australia side obviously we've got a Dutchman there but Bert Van Marwick come in what's the view on Van Marwick so far and uh, are, are the Australians missing Postacoglu. Uh, it's a very good question. It's a whole. It's a really strange situation with Andy Postacoglu because he took over the Socceroos squad around four years ago, just before they went to Brazil, and he didn't do the qualifier. So it's very much he was saying, oh, you know, this is just a, a good experience for everyone to see the World Cup. We're not expecting much. We're in a tough group. Roll on four years when I've had four years with the squad, and you know, we'll take that one seriously. He's fallen out with the FFA things have gone on and now he's walked away so now we're at a second World Cup where it's a case of oh yeah this is just another feeder tester World Cup this guy's only here for six months and they've already announced he will replace Bert Van Marwijk after the World Cup so it's a bit of a strange situation and it's interesting how Ange he said oh he didn't like the criticism from the media in Australia because his whole point of being in charge was I need Australians to be talking about football so if I'm getting press there's no such thing as bad press he has a terrible campaign, just about qualifies through the playoffs. He gets criticism and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm not putting up with this. So he walks away, which is, you know, up to you. Fair enough. And they play very, very different styles. Ange was very much, 
Let's press super high. We'll get up and three at the back, two wing backs as well, mix them in with the midfield, and it's very much we'll just attack, run at them. Whilst, but looking at the Czech Republic games, like no, we're sitting back, we're parking the bus, we're going to soak up as much pressure as we can, hope they don't score, and then we'll get them on the break. But professional footballers, you've got to adapt. So you get sold in January, transfer window, whatever. Two weeks later, you're playing a completely different system with a different club. At least they've had a month training camp, but did say he didn't really want friendlies. He just wants solid training so they can play the exact style he wants so they can get it across. But obviously, you have to play a couple of friendlies to keep everyone happy. Um, so, yeah, I think <clears throat> it is a very, very different formation and tactics to the qualifying campaign, what the qualifying campaign was. Quite tricky. And it certainly didn't make it easy. So I reckon, yeah, they should be okay. But it's just going to be very different for the Australians watching at home. It won't be as exciting, I guess. Okay, that's, that's interesting stuff, Daniel. Thanks so much for coming on World Football Index. But I believe that you don't have a Twitter account. So no, any Aussies who disagree with your fairly pessimistic prediction can't abuse you. Is that right? That is correct, yeah. And they'll have to abuse somebody else. Okay, that's perfect. Thanks so much, Daniel. Okay, I... We're, we're pretty much wrapped up now. All I'm going to ask the guys to do, as well as tell us where people can find them on Twitter, is also give us one or two players to perhaps look out for on on their sides going into this World Cup. I'll, I'll start with Freddie. Peru, I've got some talented youngsters there, haven't they? Um, well, they're not, they're not particularly that young, but, you know, sort of early 20s. Maybe you could tell the listeners a little bit about them. Yep. So I would say Edison Flores on the wing. Really look out for him. I think he's 24 years old um, and I, I absolutely love him. I think he's had a really underrated role in getting Peru to the tournament in the first place. And I really hope he performs. He was a bit rubbish against um, Scotland and Saudi Arabia, but let's go for him. Keep your eyes on him. I think he's great. Also, Renato Tapia, as mentioned, absolutely dominated centre midfielder, the uh, youngest player in the squad. Um, he plays in Eredivisie for Feyenoord, so um, you know I would suggest that people probably don't have their eyes on him yet, but look out for him too. Yeah, I think I think Tapia is my favourite player in that in that Peru side. Tom, how about France, and where can people find you on Twitter? Um, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook and I think Instagram perhaps at, at TomWFootball. Um, uh, difficult with France given that uh, their squad is, is packed with so many well-known names. But uh, yeah, a player I mentioned before, um, I'm going to go for Nabil Fekir. Um, he's going to the tournament as backup for Griezmann, so he might not get uh, all that much time on the pitch but he's a wonderful, wonderful footballer. Uh, fantastic on the ball. He's got that real sort of sense of magic about him that he can, you know, he, he can make a chance out of nothing. Uh, he's obviously being linked with a move to Liverpool at the moment. Uh, there's apparently interest from Bayern Munich, Atletico Madrid, clubs like that as well. So he's very much uh, a player to watch at the tournament uh, and, and hopefully he'll get enough time on the pitch to show us all what he can do. That's great. And and finally, Toke. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, I think it's it's quite amusing that you that you highlight Edison Flores because I've been watching him regularly in Denmark and it, it it's crazy every week we see him when we hear about how he performs in the South American qualification everybody is stunned because he's he's really not that good in in the Danish league he's mostly sitting on the bench I work together with a guy who's a, who's an Albor fan who who and and he says all of all of the fans from the club they actually hope that. Flores has sold this summer because he's 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 never gonna break through in the in Denmark and he's never gonna make the the Albert team so they hope he he gets a good World Cup so can get rid of him oh, really? uh, for a lot That's of money. Interesting. Yeah, and, <laughs> and and the club has gotten tons of of Peruvian fans uh, because yeah. of Flores, but but he rarely plays and he he never really makes an impact. I mean, it's it's obvious for all of us that he can do stuff. I mean, we see the highlights from the South American games, but but in Denmark, he just doesn't show any of that. So right. he looks highly mediocre to me. So I'm looking forward to seeing him on the national team because um, hopefully I'll get to see the real Edison Flores. <laughs> but yeah, uh, regarding this Danish team, I mean, first of all, I have to highlight Thomas Delaney. Um, although it, it pains me to, to say this because he's from a rival team of mine, but, but he's a fantastic defensive midfielder. He just... Uh, became actually earlier today the, the most expensive Danish player ever. He signed a, a contract with Dortmund from Werder Bremen. 
he has really been, he was great in the qualification for the national team. He was even greater, I think, in the Bundesliga for Werder Bremen. He's, he's such a good good central midfielder, both ends of the pitch, really. He's, he's dangerous in front of goal. He uh, can break, intercept balls, tackle, and, and also set up his teammates. So so he's definitely one to to keep an eye on. He'll be a regular for Denmark as well and, and one of our key players. He, because of his work rate, Eriksen can focus so much on, on the offense. The second player, I, I think... Many people who watch Spanish football know him already. It's, of course, Pio Nacisto. But, but for those people who don't watch Celta Vigo regularly, I, I really need, uh, need you to, to keep an eye on him. He, if he can get his big breakthrough, as I said, in this World Cup, I hope so. He's a fantastic winger. He's uh, lethal in front of goal. He has a great shot. He, he can dribble like a few others. And, and he's just an, a fantastically entertaining player, basically. I mean, he, he's a winger when, when they're best. So... Yeah, those two are someone you should definitely keep an eye on on this Danish team. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on Sisto from from the from what I've seen of him so far. Thanks so much, guys, for for joining me today. It's been a fascinating and really in depth discussion. I have to say, um, really enjoyable. So yeah, thank, thanks again for coming on. I hope you enjoyed your World Football Index experience. It's also just left for me to say um, a huge thank you to our listeners for their response to these World Cup preview pods, which are doing fantastic numbers. You know, a huge thanks to Austin as well for helping me out in the <laughs> for sharing the hosting and the and the editing of these podcasts. I certainly couldn't have done it without him. So I, I'm 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 delighted that the listeners seem to be enjoying it. We're really enjoying producing these pods for you. If you could rate and review us on iTunes, that would be great. It's just left for me to say another thank you to Tom, Frederick, Toke and Daniel. And it's goodbye. Goodbye.